causes foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is God's word. Please remain standing for the next song. Your holy Son, no sin to hide, but you have sent Him from your side to walk upon this guilty side and to become the Lamb of God. Your gift of love they crucified. They laughed and scorned him as he died. The humble king they named a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. Oh, Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the Jesus 
Christ the Lamb of God. Please be seated. Oh, great Father, once again we come to you in the name of Christ with all our declarations that we will love you with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength. Maybe that we will be faithful to you and trusting of you and your word, more or less, that we will love our neighbors and our enemies, perhaps that we will be thankful for every blessing that comes to us from your heart. Sort of. We are grateful beyond words, Father, that with you it is never maybe or more or less or perhaps or sort of. We rejoice that it is always yes with you. Through the great one who picked up his cross, through the one who suffered humiliation and cruelty and betrayal. And through the one who died and was resurrected. So give us eyes by which to live no longer in blindness. And ears by which we are deaf no more. And to be shaped, Father, by the cross that we have been called to pick up and follow our Messiah. And it is in His name that we pray this with all our heart. Amen. There is a common definition of grace that goes like this. Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. In other words, a free gift. Not one that you earned or one that you deserve, but it's one that you've been given. There's another definition that puts grace this way, that justice is getting what you deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. These are all correct definitions and fine as they go. But they don't really go far enough in helping us to understand exactly what grace is. I want to give you a a definition of grace that you can begin working over in your mind the coming days and years. And it goes like this. Grace is the power of God and the wisdom of God through the presence of God achieving what we could never achieve on our own. I want to say that one more time. Grace is the power and the wisdom of God through the presence of God achieving what we could never achieve on our own. Grace is bigger than just what happens at the moment of your salvation when your sins are forgiven. It is a gift that is with you for all of life because it is the gift of a new life. A life that will be lived differently in light of the love and the forgiveness and the mercy and the compassion and the presence of God. And this is one of the reasons why Paul, quite frankly, would write at the beginning of his letters, grace and peace to you, even though the people he is writing to had already been saved. Which brings us to the church in Corinth, uh, part of the letter that, uh, that Michael just read for us. You know the story on, uh, on Corinth. 
Uh, most people think of Corinth as a church that is just one big dysfunctional mess. Uh, messed up on unity, messed up on sex, messed up on worship, and messed up on gifts of the Spirit, messed up on the Lord's Supper, messed up on women, just sort of messed up. Uh, I heard Richard Rogers preach uh, a sermon years ago. It's actually a sermon series on uh, the Corinthian correspondence, primarily 1 Corinthians. And he made a statement that stayed with me my entire life up to this day. He believed that in spite of all of the mess that the church in Corinth found itself in and that Paul was writing to, to correct, that the church in Corinth was one of the most powerful churches in the New Testament. I think he was right. But I would take it one step further. I would take his statement a bit further and say the church is the most powerful community of people on earth. We are. Notice the verse at the beginning of this letter. This is verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, I always thank God for you because of His grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Circle that word grace. Remember our definition of grace is God's presence bringing a power and a wisdom into our lives to achieve what we cannot achieve on our own. Notice what this power and wisdom that has come as a grace in their lives is achieving. Very next verse, verse 5, you have been enriched in every way. Enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Verse 7, you do not lack any spiritual gift. Verse 8, he will keep you strong. And yet the church in Corinth had decided to take a different kind of trajectory. They had taken a human trajectory. They would look at each other and they would say, you know what, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas, which is Peter, or I follow Christ. They had become very human-centered. They had become uh, sort of this uh, different cults of personality within the church. Later on, they say, you know, you speak in tongues, but I'm a, I speak prophecies, therefore I'm better than you because tongues is down here, prophecies is way up here. Instead of becoming one, they have been stratified. They have been stratified. They have become divided. They do not possess love, and they are not possessed by love, at least that love that is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It was become, becoming a church. It was becoming something other than what God had intentioned for it. And in our text, Paul is going to remind them, he's going to remind us, that there is another kind of a power and another kind of wisdom that comes into our life. And he says in verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the, say it with me, power of God. And what Paul does, and he does this many times in his writings, Paul takes them to a really odd place. You would think that what they need is a lot of information about the dangers of stratifying and humanly, human wisdom and the way that it affects human beings. What he does is he takes them to an odd place. He says, remember the cross. The cross is where everything wrong with human beings and everything wrong with the world meets God. And it's the cross that begins to make the difference. 
in the way that you and I and every church and every disciple of Nazareth lives in this world. I want to talk about the cross this morning and the things that it means for us. Number one, the cross turns our world right side up. The cross turns our world right side up. There's a story that was told about a a fighter pilot flying a jet at doing high-speed maneuvers. The, the, The pilot, she pulls back on the stick thinking that she's going to go into the steep ascent and she flies the nose of her plane straight into the ground because she didn't understand or didn't see on her her instrument panel, that she was flying upside down. Jesus, in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, begins to teach in those consecutive chapters something that the disciples never thought would happen or that they would even imagine could happen. He begins in those chapters to tell them that he is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, that he is going to be beaten without mercy, and he is going to be uh, railroaded into a, onto a Roman cross. And that's what happens, as you know, at the end of all of the gospel. All of this happens. Jesus is betrayed. He is beaten. He is mocked. He is, he is lied about. He is beaten again and beaten again. And then he's finally, he dies on the cross. And that's the end of the story. One afternoon, Jesus dead on the cross. And then three days later, Sunday morning comes. And it's not the end of the story. The resurrection turns the world upside down. Life, not death, is going to have the last say. Do you know that there was a time when human beings did not know the definition of the word death? They had never seen anything die. Death was not the end result of anything in life. It was to be lived with God, and it was forever and ever. Life stretched on forever and ever. Human beings were not supposed to get weaker and weaker, but stronger and stronger. More beautiful and more beautiful. But then sin turned the world upside down, and death became the end. And this resurrection that Jesus went through was the first act in turning the world right side up. These great reversals are a constant theme in the teachings of Jesus. Think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Whoever thought that the poor in spirit would be blessed? That blessing, that a blessed life would be a part of the way that they would live. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessedness comes to those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He would say the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you want to become great, then you've got to become the servant of everyone. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. And then he says in verses 23 and 24, 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. Christ the power and the wisdom of God. Now some are going to call it a stumbling block. Others are going to say it's the silliest, most foolish thing I've ever heard in my life. To them, the cross was not something to celebrate. The cross was something to avoid. Get away from it. It's gruesome. It's bloody. It's cruel. It's brutal. It's the problem that you want to avoid. But to disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, the cross is the counterintuitive answer to everything wrong with humans who are flying upside down. 
Not only does the cross turn the world right side up, but the cross brings the healing that we need. You know, Patrick Ramsey says that Christ did not save the world by handing out tickets to heaven. He saved the world by giving himself. We read in 2 Peter chapter 2 that he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that is the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What is wrong with the world goes deeper than just the examples of injustice and hate and crimes and, and deceit and cruelties. It goes beyond the sum of bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. What is wrong with the world goes beyond the scope of politics. The problem with the world is the effect of sin on the human heart. And all of these other things, the cruelties, the crimes, the injustice, the betrayals, the racism, all of these are symptoms of the human heart in need of healing. It is the effect of sin that makes us lustful and vengeful and prideful, and we are all guilty. Our souls are sick, our hearts inclined towards evil, our minds are depraved. How else do you explain schools being shot up and children and sex slavery and all of the other things? I mean, any six-year-old kid can tell you what is wrong with the world. The cross gives us the data on human beings. But the cross goes a little bit further than just the data on human beings. The cross tells us what it is that God is doing about it. God, through the cross of Jesus, is bringing healing by forgiving us and redeeming us from our slavery to sin, transforming us, defeating death, bringing eternity into our present, putting His Spirit into us who believe in order to produce fruit or a different kind of a life. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Therefore, let no one who boasts, boast on, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31. Number three, the cross is a determined act of love. You know, have you ever, have you ever thought about, I, I, maybe preachers are the only ones that do this, but have you ever thought about what if the Bible was a reality show? I mean, who would want to be in that? Not me. But could you imagine watching a reality show and that particular episode that has to do with, with the passion of Jesus that last week of his life? I mean, you'd be sitting there on the couch and, you, and you would, you, you'd be struck by the irony of it like a baseball bat to the forehead. Jesus is the only non-guilty human being when it comes to the cross. The Jewish leaders were guilty of envy. The witnesses against Jesus were guilty of false testimony. Pilate, guilty of injustice. The Roman soldiers are guilty of cruelty. The crowd is guilty of mockery. The twelve are guilty of cowardice. Judas, guilty of betrayal. And yet, at the cross, his blood was spilled and the blow of God's judgment 
was made to fall on him so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. The Hebrew writer says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. John, who was there and saw it, said, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from every sin. And Paul will say in Romans chapter 8 that because all of that is true, there is now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus died for everyone and it was a love that is beyond our understanding. But the one thing, one thing that we can know about the cross is that it was for us. For God demonstrates His own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, while still alienated from God, Christ died for us. And then finally, the cross brings us to our true home. The cross brings us to our true home. Philip Yancey in a really fabulous book on grace called Amazing Grace tells this story of, of a young girl growing up on a cherry orchard in a small town in Michigan. She and her parents get crosswise with one another. Her parents, as, as uh, disciples of Jesus, are upset with the way that she is living. They fight all the time, especially her and her father. And she gets to a place where she just doesn't want to live under those rules anymore. She doesn't want to live that kind of life. And she decides that she's going to go of all places to Detroit. She thinks it's the last place that her parents will ever find her. With all that violence, with all that crime, she reasons it's the last place her parents will ever go to look for her. And so she takes the bus. She gets off there in Detroit. She's there the second day. And she meets uh, a man who says he'll take care of her and take her under his wing. Gives her a place to stay, buys her food, but he also begins to demand things of her. And she teaches her, he teaches her things that men like. And the months go one after the other. She's there a year. Then another year, she sometimes thinks about the cherry orchard. She wonders about her mom and dad. And then one day she looks in the mirror and she knows that there is a sickness that has invaded her body. And pretty soon the man discovers that she has the sickness and kicks her to the street. And it's there that she becomes destitute, homeless. Yancey says that she turns tricks in order just to find something to eat. She doesn't have two nickels to rub together. She just finds the money for the drug habit and for something to eat. And after a while, she realizes that she's getting sicker and sicker, and she begins to wonder why she ever left home. And after a while, she realizes in a flash of clarity that she wants more than anything else to go home. So she musters up the courage back in the day when there were payphones. You go into that little phone booth, put the coins in to make the call. She does this three times. The first two times goes to voicemail, goes to the little, little answering machine. 
And she doesn't say anything. She hangs up quickly. The last time, the answering machine clicks on. And this time, she decides that she's going to say something. And she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about coming home. And so I'm going to catch a bus. And it will get to our little town about midnight tomorrow night. And if you're not there, well, I guess... I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. She hangs up. She gets on the bus. It's a seven-hour seven ride. And in those seven hours as she's riding home, she begins to see sort of the, the holes in her plan. What if they don't get the phone call? What if they don't want me back? What if, what if, what if? And finally they get within 15 minutes of that little town with the cherry orchard. And the bus driver says, 15-minute folks. And they pull into that little bus station. And everyone gets off. She's the last one. And she walks into that little terminal. And in all of the scenes that she has played out in her mind, not one of them has prepared her for what she's going to see. She's going to see 40 of her brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. And they're all there in the terminal with party hats on. And there's a big sign that says, Welcome home. Welcome home. We love you. And she walks up to her dad. And it's, it's a tense moment. She has been thinking about what she's going to say. And she says, Dad, I'm, I'm so very sorry. And he says to her, Shh. be time for that later but right now we have to go home because there's a banquet that is waiting for you you know paul writes that that the jews were demanding a sign and gentiles were looking for wisdom for the jews the sign was it was going to be another exodus it was going to be another moses showing up leading them out of their existence their oppressed existence under the thumb of rome That was what they were looking for. The Gentiles were just looking for something smart. They were just looking for something intelligent. And everything they were looking for was found in the cross. At the cross we trade our hell for God's presence in God's heaven. At the cross I trade my hate for love and I trade slavery for freedom. I trade my guilt for His innocence. I trade my wounds for His healing. And I trade my weakness for His strength. You know, some years ago, uh, I planned a surprise party for Ellen while we were living in Kansas. Ellen and I uh, jumped into the... uh, I had a Ford Bronco too. Not the most romantic vehicle ever to come out of Detroit. And uh, we left for dinner, and our friends, as we were driving down the street, our friends were coming in through the back with all of the food and everything. And about halfway to the restaurant, I said, you know what, I can't believe this, I forgot my wallet. And we drove back to the house and opened up the garage and drove the truck in, and I said, "Uh, I know where it is. And then I said, why don't you come in with me? And she looks at me, and she's going, "Um, no, I'll wait right here. I'll wait right here. 
And I go, no, 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 no. Um, maybe I don't know where it is. Come with me. And she was not happy with me at all at, for getting out of that vehicle. And we opened up that kitchen door from the garage, and she walked into the room, and everyone jumped out and yelled, Happy birthday, surprise. And my little wife just stopped in her tracks. And she was trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And then when she realized that it was a surprise party, that I, you know, she was not having to go look for a wallet that her dumb husband had left at the house and was making us late for dinner, but instead, we were going to have a party for her. And her eyes brimmed up with tears. You know, the cross, believe it or not, as brutal and as gruesome as it is, is an invitation to a party. It's so counterintuitive. It is a place where, where people are, 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 are made less than human in the way that they are put to death. All except that one. All except that one. And even at that one, they thought it was going to be about death, but instead it was really about life. And that's why the cross, while it may be foolishness to everyone else, is, is wisdom to us. It brings a healing into our life. It turns our world right side up. We see a determined act of love on our behalf. And it's at the cross that we are able to come to our truest home. I have a, I have a favor to ask as we close. As you know, um, the invitation, we, we, we sing a song, and it's an invitation for you to come down to talk with our shepherds about the things that are going on in your life, and we're going to do that. But I, as, as just a favor to me, you know my voice. I, I sing like a prisoner. I'm always behind a few bars, and I don't have the right key. <laughs> but just quietly, where you are right now, I'd just like for us all, quietly where you're seated, to just sing together the, uh, the chorus of this song. And you know the words. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, of my soul rolled away, Lord. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Let's stand and sing. Last and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he that sacred hand for such a one as I at the cross at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away it was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all 
We have a couple of prayer requests that have uh, come forward this morning. Monica Perez for her daughter Isabella Amiscua. Uh, Isabella is going to be going under undergoing surgery on Wednesday. Please pray for her surgical team and that she may find relief from pain and a smooth and speedy recovery. Mary Beth Thompson would like for us to pray for her father, John Wilkins. Uh, as you know, John is uh, struggling with Parkinson's. Uh, she writes that he is very ill right now, is deteriorating very quickly. Please, please pray for recovery as well as strength for my mother and for myself. Uh, Josh Lawrence, for guidance and following God's purpose, I pray that my heart and mind be open to God's will and a plan for my life and the decisions uh, that I'm going to, uh, to take going forward. I ask that the church pray for my heart and mind to stay open to Him and His will as I know that His plan is perfectly righteous and true. I want to follow Him in full trust and obedience. Loretta Woodson for Charlene Bird. She's experiencing a lot of pain from shingles on her face and it's affecting her eyes. Also, please pray for brother and sister Clack at the, at, um, at the loss of their daughter. Uh, they are members of the Delcrest Church of Christ. Donnie Munster for grandson Major Munster, who will have surgery on Wednesday. Also pray for the family of my brother-in-law, Robert Munster, who passed away recently. Those are the prayer requests. Uh, remember, the shepherds are going to be down here at the front if you would like to spend some time in prayer with them. You're also free now, if you have kids and sparks, to go and get them as we sing our last song together. Be blessed this week. Let's all stand. Father God, just for today, help me walk your narrow way. Help me stand when I would fall. Give me the strength to hear your call. May my steps be.